artists I encountered as a collector, as well as a fellow artist, where I'm like, my God, their technique. It's I, I admire technique, of course, but my technique is my technique and it's not what you would call perfect. Uh, right. That is that is not what you come to me for. <laughs> there are other people you go to if you want someone to draw you an apple that looks like an apple. That was Sarah Zucker, a.k.a. at The Sarah Show on most platforms. Sarah is an artist and writer based in Los Angeles. Her work is, at least to me, it's very hard to classify, but I consider that to be a good thing. At times, it can be humorous and playful, or it can go completely the other direction and feel very personal with some simple but deeper thought-provoking phrases, and we'll talk about a few of those in the show. Design-wise, much of it has a very psychedelic vibe that can feel somewhat vintage, and I think that's largely because she's so good at blending new tech with old analog devices, such as VHS players. It's really a cool style. I think there's two things that she does quite well. One, always keeps you guessing, and you have no idea what she's going to be producing next. And two, her style feels very authentic. It doesn't feel forced. It feels like she hasn't left anything on the table, and it's very much her own. She's been additioning her art on the blockchain since early 2019. Her work was part of two landmark NFT auctions, one called Natively Digital at Sotheby's, and the other Crypto OGs, the pioneers of NFT art at Bonhams and Super Rare. Her GIF art has been viewed over 6.7 billion times on Giphy. And while we didn't cover this in the show, and I wish I would have known this ahead of time, I didn't find out until later, she's actually also a Jeopardy champion. Sarah is just a fantastic human. We had a lot of fun. I know you're going to enjoy this chat. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to get into your background and learn about your entire process, creative process, because one, I I discovered you, I would say, I don't know, maybe about a month or so ago. And what's crazy is with all things NFTs, I guess everything's crazy in this world. You, you just blew up. Like, I feel like... <laughs> It just went insane. And your art is so funky and weird and beautiful and all, all the checkboxes that I love to check when I collect things. But but before we get into to all of that, I think just your background and, and when you got into this space and was this always something like as a little kid, you were always very into art. Uh, can you walk me through that? Sure. Happy to. And it's funny you say that about, about blowing up. Like I, I'm the classic 10-year overnight success, right? Or maybe even longer, really, if you if you want to be cumulative about it. Yeah, I mean, I've always just been like a weirdo kind of <laughs> kind of person, just march to the beat of my own drums, so to speak. And yeah. uh, I, I even tell people like, it's something I've been reflecting on a lot lately in terms of art. Art is like a calling, right? Like you're called to it. It's a siren song. And I, I from my earliest days, just was like, obsessively expressing myself. <laughs> I, I can't stop it. It's a compulsion, you know? Yeah. And I, I was fortunate as like a, in my later childhood years, I, I actually went to an arts magnet school. Mm. And uh, this is a story I told. I did like an interview for Super Rare recently where I've been reflecting on this a lot because it, it's such a pivotal moment now that I have this this moment of, of crypto art and everything I'm doing with technology to, to kind of reflect back on that 
as a 10 year old, we had to choose a major. We had to choose an art yes. major. And I chose visual art, even though I was very taken by drama. And it was like at 10 years old, the weight of the world on my shoulders of right. like, oh, you're 10. Pick what your life is going to be about. No pressure. And so I chose visual arts and I, I was in this arts class with this woman who her, her background was in drawing, like she was specifically an illustrator. And uh, we had this, this project to do a self portrait and I wanted to use the computer. I wanted to like mm. use Photoshop. I was, I was teach, I wanted to teach myself Photoshop basically because they, they had it on the computers at school and I didn't have Photoshop at home. What year was this? This would have been like 1996, maybe, okay. ni- maybe 1997, thereabouts. I was yeah. in like the, I think, fifth grade. That's so funny. So oddly enough, I am older than you, but I was also, for me, I went to vocational school and they made me pick the same thing. Like when yeah. I was 16, they were like, choose what you want to do for the rest of your life. Right. I, ch- <laughs> I chose like 3D animation. Mm. And so at the, the same years that you're talking about or when you're off, I was I was learning 3D animation software. Wow, <laughs> but I, re- cool. I remember that. Like Photoshop was like, yeah, it was expensive, right? Oh and like, my God. Yeah, we couldn't have it at home like unless, no. I, unless I figured out how to pirate it. Totally. And for me, up until that point, I remember, I actually have it on video. I have, I'm very fortunate. I have an extensive home video collection that, of course, with the work I do, I've like digitized, you know? And I have this whole catalog of my early years where I'm like, holy shit, like I have on video the moment where I discovered video feedback because my dad showed it to me in like 1992. And I also have the moment where I got kid pics, which was this software that I actually I, I'm forgetting the name of the artist who designed it, but it was it was a computer artist who designed this art software for kids. And I have the moment that I like got kid pics for Hanukkah and like you can see it in my eyes. It's like one of those destiny moments of like, oh my God, I can make art with the computer now. And so I'd been doing that for years, right? But at 10, I was like, excuse me, I am a little too refined for kid pics now. Like right. I I'm ready for, for my Photoshop years. Right. And this would have been like Photoshop three. Right. Something? Right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Like pretty rudimentary, obviously, compared to now. But it was like Windows Paint, MS Paint wasn't cutting it for me anymore. Yeah. Kidpix wasn't cutting it for me anymore. I needed the hard stuff. And so I like told this art teacher when I was 10, hey, I want to do like a I want to do a photograph and I want to do something with Photoshop. And this woman like laid into me, this 10 year old, this, this chipper little 10 year old who's like, I want to make computer art laid into me and was like, you kids are so obsessed with computers. Making art with a computer is not real art. Like if it's made with a computer, then the computer's the artist, not you. And it's because of kids like you who are obsessed with computers. We're going to lose all of the traditional art forms where nobody's going to paint anymore. Nobody's going to draw anymore. Okay, and so it, she's either really mean or like super prescient in that she's predicting AI that's going to happen 10 years from now. Truly, like as part, <laughs> as part of this rant, she went off. She kind of went on a tangent about in 20 years, you're all just going to be sitting at home and you're not even going to go out. You're not even going to go shopping anymore. You're all just going to buy. You're going to want to sit and buy things on the computer. And of course, I was 10 and I was like, that sounds awesome. Yeah. She, she basically predicted Amazon. She's probably a billionaire now, like the first investor in Amazon <laughs> oh, or whatever. Yeah. Well, because she hated it so much. Oh, sad, she hated it. Okay. Sadly, I think not. Right. She, I mean, she was like, it was that thing of like, I as a 10 year old accidentally like poked a wound, I think that was like maybe a little like she as someone who was very dedicated to the quote unquote traditional arts. I had brought up something that clearly was like she as an artist hated that people used computers to make art. And so she said to me, she forbid me. She said, 
in the four years you're in my class, you will never use a computer once. I will not allow the use of computers in my art class. So I, so I quit art. I quit art class because I, look, I love to draw. Drawing has always been a really central part of my art practice, but I am not, I had my best friend at the time was the kind of person you could give her a pencil and she could draw you a picture that looks like a photo. That was not me. That will never be me. I see things the way I see things. I actually have like very bad eyesight. I have <laughs> like a crossed eye. So I see double. And it's one of those things that has evolved to actually be why I think my work is so recognizable, right? Like if we see work that's photorealistic, you go, right, that looks like the thing right. the person was looking at. If you see my drawings, you go, that looks like what Sarah sees. That like, it right. doesn't look like what anyone else sees necessarily. Like these things that are our limitations, if you learn to work with them, they actually can be sort of your greatest gift in a certain way. And so I, at 10, I recognized I was like, this art class, I'm always going to be the one who's not doing well. I'm always going to be the one failing mm. art class because I can't draw an apple that looks like an apple. My apple is always going to look wonky. And so she's going to give me bad grades because this is someone who is a technician. This is someone who the right. most important thing to her is technique. Right. And perfection. Hey, she's looking for right? like photorealistic perfection, basically. Totally. And I'm not knocking technique. There are so what's so cool about the crypto art space that I move in now is how many people I encounter, how many artists I encounter as a collector, as well as a fellow artist where I'm like, my God, their technique. It's I admire technique, of course, but my technique is my technique and it's not what you would call perfect. Uh, right. That is that is not what you come to me for. <laughs> there are other people you go to if you want someone to draw you an apple that looks like an apple. Right. I'm not I'm not your guy for that. So um, so, yeah, I left art class. I majored in drama instead and became theater girl. And that was my life for the rest of my education. All the way through, I, I went to acting conservatory training in college. I got a master's degree in screenwriting. So wait, did you ever use Photoshop then? Oh my God, are you kidding me? Of course. Wait, of so course. how did you get at it? Did you get it at home finally? Or what? Because she's think, forbid you for four years. Yeah, no, yeah. Wasn't at school. Let's think about this. That would have been, I probably got my hands on it around maybe a year or two later at home. Um... <laughs> I'm like, is the statute of limitations up to say how I got my hands on it? Let's just say I did not pay the exorbitant up. price for it. I, th I, think was... you're, I think this plug alone for Photoshop, like they're going to be okay with you saying that you pirated yeah, it. Those were right. Those were like the Napster, LimeWire, Kazaa years at that okay. point. So, Well, at least you did it the, the modern way. I remember like pirating software where I'd like a friend would bring over discs. It was very yeah. much like open up your like dark, coat and like inside there were sure. like discs of software. Yeah, I might that might have been how I got it at first too. But yeah, I got my hands on it by the end of middle school and and again, right? It's like that was my tool. I knew even even as a kid, it's like that's I need Photoshop, right? That's where yeah. the magic happens. And so it was so complex. I remember just being like, I need to go get a book. I I went to like oh, Barnes totally. and Noble and got like the Photoshop Bible or whatever. And it was like, yep, I think literally I got like, the same thing. Yeah, it was like like three times thicker than any normal Bible. It was like this massive book. It was totally. like every single tool and yeah, it was a lot. And what's crazy about Photoshop is like, right, I've been using it. That was the 90s, right? So I've been using yeah. it over 20 years. There are still things that I figure out, like hotkeys or something I'll right. figure out. And I'll be like, 
wow, I wish I had known that 20 years ago. Are you kidding me? I've been doing it like the hard way for 20 some years. Oh, okay. totally. Or yeah. when they move something like you're like two versions ago, it was over here. Now, where is oh, it now? I know. Like, <laughs> well, my, my greatest fear, like with what I do is that one of the settings I use most of all is under a menu that I think is literally called like legacy settings. And oh, it's, yes, yes. it's save for web, right? Yes. That's how you make a GIF. And I'm always like, the fact that it's in this menu called legacy settings, I'm like, is this a threat, Adobe? Are you threatening me? Like, are you, yeah. are you threatening me? Like, why I don't is know it a why legacy they, setting? I know that was like my, well, for years, that was the only way we would export, right? That right. was not, that was the main screen that would come up, but it showed the side by side of the original versus which one was going to do the compression on, right? And you'd like go all the tw- tweaks yep. and everything. Yep. Yeah. And now it's like deprecated. I, yeah, I'm with you. I'm like, <laughs> don't ever go away. Because the, yeah. the the default like export is ping is just like they don't even give you anything to set. They're just like, oh, hey, I know. We, we think we got you, and they just like kick it out as a ping file, and it's like, well, and it's just like people like me or X copy or any number of us yeah. where it's like my work can be a video and often is a video, but especially with my crypto art, like I came up really in the Tumblr years, so like I'm I was a GIF artist primarily, yeah. and I still. With crypto art, I prefer to use GIF whenever possible because it's it plays much nicer cross-platform. You always right. know the GIF is going to be animated. Makes me crazy with my work if I do it as a video. And some of the platforms like don't even allow for GIFs. Some of my work can look really good as a still. But a, for most of my work, I feel like if I if you force me to only show the still... It's not compelling. It's like not, it's like people don't, they're not getting the whole point of my work is it's in the fourth dimension. Time is an essential component to the work that I do, the loops that I create. Mm -hmm. So if you're just seeing one frame, you're missing the point of the art. And so I still, yeah, I still really use GIF whenever possible. And for me, my work, because it is using so much vintage technology using I'm always hesitant to define myself as like a glitch artist because I think that's pretty reductive but obviously glitch is like and aspects of glitchiness play a role in what I do so I find that the sacrifice of compression for the sake of the gif is usually worth it because you don't notice it as intensely in my work right. as you, as you would in say something that was like 4k video you notice it when it's a GIF. You're like, oh, right. that looks that looks crunchy. How do you define it? Because I've heard glitch artists used a lot, and it seems to be that certain artists have aspects of glitchiness. Would you say that X Copy is a, a glitch artist? Definitely. The okay. thing of, the thing about glitch art as a term, it's kind of like crypto art as a term, right? It's such a huge umbrella of a term that I think probably in time when art historians look at this era and like are naming things, they'll probably, you know, change the name. <laughs> they'll probably get more granular. Like my work and X copies work are very different, but we mm-hmm. both use like on a philosophical level, you would say both are glitch because both comprise aesthetic elements that involve the decay of an image, the mm-hmm. decay of a crisp a crisp look or crisp aesthetic. So we obviously go about it in completely different ways, but absolutely, I'd say we both fall under that same banner. Um, yeah. It's weird how addicting glitch is as a genre. <laughs> yeah. Like, I remember when I first saw an X copy, I'm like, okay, I'm quickly going to know if I'm one of those people that get seizures or not when the flashing <laughs> lights hit you. You know what I yeah, mean? Like, I'm like, sure. I'm going to look at this for like five minutes and like, I might just like fall over. Like, we'll see. 
And uh, like, that's a really scary thing. Like it's a real, that's a real thing for a lot of people. I'm not oh, trying yeah. to make, make fun oh, of yeah. that, but it's like his, his stuff is very, very bold. And, and like some of them, it's like, you can't stare at it uh-huh. uh, for too long. Be- and not because of the seizure stuff, but just because it's like, it's intense on the, on yeah. just making you like, your brain can't handle that much flashing for, yeah. for that amount of time. But then all of a sudden you start to click around and you see some other glitch artists. Oh, this is like a funky way of like, like you said, that decay and that just like loudness that it can bring or even a really subtleness, like sometimes like a little backdrop of fuzziness animated in a certain way that just brings life and depth to a piece of art versus it just being something flat. For sure. It's, I've, it's funny you say that. It, absolutely. I think a lot of glitch art can be that sort of like Shia and Andalusia, like razor blade across the eyeball. And and I'm not saying that as a critique. I think that that absolutely has an intended impact. And I mean, to get heady for a second, it's like when you think about glitch as an aesthetic, right, that it's like it's we're having this moment or really it's been for the past decade, even I'd say has been the rise of glitch art, that it's coming at the same time we're reaching. We're on this the Moore's Law singularity of like how crisp displays have become and how mm-hmm. we have 8K plus resolution at this point. And it makes, it brings to mind for me, and again, this is why I say, let me, let me get heady. I'm going to, I'm going to go on a, a thought for a second. It makes me think of like the Maniera painters that came after the Renaissance. Like there was this little short window of time after the Renaissance. It was literally like maybe 40 years where the painters got weird. Like the painters started to go, Instead of trying to make everything the golden ratio and make everything perfect, we've been doing those forms for like several hundred years at this point. What if we start making things? What if we start taking the ideal look of things and and turning them up to 11, cranking them up to a point where it's over idealized to the point that it looks kind of alien? Mm. And like the, the most famous one of that is called the long neck Madonna, which I think is really funny because we have the, the long necky ladies now that are that profile picture project that are, I almost wonder if they're inspired by this. It's like uh, this post-Renaissance painting of this Madonna and child, but the baby is, it's the body of the Christ child is super long and the Madonna has like this neck that's like, well, that's not what people look like. And when you see it, you're like, you'd almost think it was painted contemporaneously, like now, because you're like, this is not what Renaissance paintings look like. They were all about perfection and, and like idealized representation. So this is like the same look but they've made it warped and weird. And yeah. it's that. It's like you're looking at this era of of art where they were sort of going, now that we've made everything so perfect, mm-hmm. we need to figure out what's next. And we can't figure out what's next until we take what we already have and break it. Right. And I think that, to me, is why glitch art is such a potent aesthetic right now and why there are so many people working with aspects of glitch, myself included. I often tell people, you know, I'm associated with analog video art, but that's not my only art form. It never, it's something that for about six years now has been my primary focus that I just keep tumbling further and further down the rabbit hole. Like, it's very exciting when you've reached a point with working with the technique where you're in that zone of wow, now I'm really doing stuff that's entirely my own. I'm past the point of just imitating the people I admire. I'm now at the point where other people are imitating me because I'm setting, I'm setting the pace. And that's so cool. Yeah. So it's, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm still very much in it. I'm very much in the thick of it, 
But I also recognize that I'm built to grow, right? And and sp- if we speak about my artist journey, I, I I was a primarily a photographer for about a decade. That part of me having quit art education, visual art education, when I was ten years old, is it freed me up to teach myself that. I got Photoshop in the late 90s. And then in the early 2000s, I got super fascinated by, by film photography specifically, like, and how film worked in old cameras. So I often define, like, if I had to say the type of photography I did, I'd call it like experimental street photography because I was always taking these cameras around and, and just shooting what I saw. But I was playing with things like double exposures. I was I was like hacking these cameras and doing things that's very analogous to what I do now with vintage video technology. That yeah. I'm, I'm taking something that was a consumer product and I'm going, what can I do with this to make it look the way I want it to look or, or make it just look different? Make it look yeah. like Sarah Zucker made that because she did something with it that no one else would have done with that. And so I know that about myself that I for 10 years thought of myself as Sarah Zucker, the photographer. And around 2011, partly because film got really expensive and partly because it was just the natural feeling of like, I'm an on a very online person, even as a photographer. I was very involved in communities that were all that were sort of like proto Instagram in a way that I was sharing my photography and people from around the world were commenting on it on these like these bulletin boards and that I was part of. And yeah, around 2011, it just started to be like with the rise of things like Instagram. And just in my own practice, I started really being drawn towards video and movement. And I've long said these two sides of me as an artist that I am a visual artist, but I am also a writer. I am also a performer. I've long threatened like these are these two sort of arcs. And at some point, they would they will uh, cross paths, right? And I, I'm very near to that point now. And and these past years working with video, it has allowed me to bring in a lot more of my the side of me that does narrative work and does performance work. And do you feel that a lot of that is starting to play out? I mean, you make, I would say a lot of the the stuff that I see, like say on Super Rare, like sometimes you have pieces that are, that are kind of like, Text statements is that is that a bit of that starting to kind of like pop its head out and 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 some of the things that you want to say are now coming out in your art right one hundred percent i i so my screen name the sarah show i again I came up with when I was about ten when I like had to come up with a screen name for a o l instant messenger and i I've used it ever since it oh, was man, my yours is way better than mine was uh, yeah <laughs> I know i'm, I'm lucky that, right, yeah. I had some bad ones along the way too, but the Sarah show was always sort of my main one I came back to because it's like hey, it's simple but effective, and it was my handle all through my photography years too and now I'm, I'm of course applying this, this thinking to it down the line, like later on, but I've come to realize how my body of work as an artist, it really is like a show. They really are these like transmissions I'm sending out into, into the ether. And I think a lot of the artists in the crypto art space that people latch onto, it's because there's a certain type of consistency, right? You know, with an X copy, you know, it's an X copy, you know, with a coldie that it's a coldie, like there's a look to it, right? And with mine, I think that consistency comes, of course, people, of course, there's the VHS aspect that of course, there's a visual consistency. But I think my consistency also comes from, I think of it almost as like this ongoing process of personal revelation and like technosis in a way, like, 
that I, I do love to indulge sort of like mystical thinking and specifically as it re- relates to technology. And yeah, with every piece I make, sometimes that takes the form of an abstract rhythmic piece that's, that's really just about colors and textures and movement. Sometimes, sometimes that takes the form of, of these video thoughts, as I've, as I've begun calling them, mm-hmm. these text pieces where the text is writing, right? It has this concept, this thought, but then I like to see how much I can get an almost synesthesia between the thought and the visual and make it so that the visual itself feeds into the thought. And it's, it's like a mantra almost, a contained little feedback loop of, of concept. And of course, then there's my video paintings, right? Which I think are maybe some of my most well-known works that are, that are figurative drawings that are almost like cartoons that I'm doing with this vintage video painter. And those are very much like I have this running list of ideas for, for these video paintings that I'm just always adding to, which really comes from the writer part of me that I know if you don't write it down, you will not remember it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm always, I have this sort of work, ongoing work list of like, little snippets of visual or idea or concept that come to me. And cumulatively, that's had this effect of, yeah, if you look at even just like my super rare page alone, which I have other work out there, but just my super rare feed alone, I, I try to be also very thoughtful about the like when I tokenize things and mm-hmm. the, or, the order of it so that as you go through it, is it something that you could follow like a movie? No, not necessarily. It's not quite that concrete and tangible. But I do like to think that I'm sort of weaving this ongoing narrative of the inside of my own mind and the inside of my own experience. And like I said, personal revelation through this art. And it, and again, that is very much informed that I am a very narrative thinker, that I, that I really, I have this background in screenwriting that I can't help it. I can't help but come up with characters and stories and, and thoughts. There, there's so many cool different types of, I mean, as you mentioned, there's, there's different styles that you have in here as you kind of like go and scroll down the feed. I'm really curious. This doesn't look like Photoshop land. This looks like, a, <laughs> and, and you say that you do some VHS work as well. Can you walk us through, like, if I, if I pick a couple of these out here, and we'll, of course, link all these up in the show notes, but can you walk us through a little bit of the creative process of how something like this comes together? The first one, I mean, the second one, the most recent one at the time of this recording on Super Rare is uh, Electric Dream. Mm-hmm. And, and that thing, that is just like, it's beautiful, it's trippy, it's, it's like this, like, well, you go ahead and describe it. Sure. Yeah. I've, I've started to call my abstract pieces video feelings because again, they are, they are the most sort of non-linear. They're not, they're not comprising a thought. They're a mood, right? Like that's, that's how I think of them is I'm crafting a mood. And I'm, as an artist, what I like about that is I'm getting to turn off the executive brain when I'm creating them. And it really is following my intuition with colors and rhythm and patterns and, and textures. And uh, a lot of that comes from that I actually am a drummer. Like I've been, I've started playing drums when I was 10. And I've realized how with the video feelings, they are music, right? They're man, visual, busy visual music. Old. Oh, you, man, I sure was. A lot of 10. I sure was. I'm and I'm the same way still, you know, I, I just, I'm excited about making things. <laughs> and I'm excited. Like I said, I'm obsessed with expressing myself. It's That's like, awesome. It's what it's like what I find anymore, like if I do have any, that's what I spend my money on is I'm like, I am not going to be out there getting getting things that are anything other than like new tools, new yeah. tools of creativity. That's what excites me. That's what is like yeah. my treat 
is new tools. I, I'm with you on that, by the way. Like people ask me why I've created so many different startups in the past, and it's like I like building new things. It's uh, just like there's the, what more fun is there in life than to try something novel and new and different than and something you've never done before. It's just like the coolest thing ever, <laughs> for sure. And I know it's like a, as a person relating to other people, like. I think I'm a good friend. I have a lot of fun with people. I also, I love to be convivial and entertain and all those things. But I also know that like nothing satisfies me more than locking myself in my tower to, to, to make yeah. my alchemy. And so that's gotten me through in a lot of ways. I think that maybe it's, I wasn't like a lonely child, but I certainly, I think that it's something I share with a lot of the artists I know where it's like, and it's what got me through the pandemic, right? Like yeah. I, it's what made it so that for me, of course, this this past two years were challenging for all of us in so many ways. And there was a lot of fear. But beyond the fear, the aspect of like, well, you have to, all, oh, well, all you get to do is be stuck at home with all of your toys. I was like, okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's not the worst thing in the world for me. In fact, it's kind of a dream come true that I don't have all these other obligations taking me away from my toys. But I digress. So with, ele- <laughs> so with Electric Dream... Uh, with these video feelings, they almost always, not always, but almost always start with digital animation of some variety. And I have a number of ways I create that. I have a, like a video synthesis software I use. I, I like anyone, I use After Effects. I use Photoshop. Sometimes I, uh, again, because I have this background in photography, a lot of what I do starts as just original footage I shoot. Like I shoot digital footage on my SLR or on, on my phone even sometimes. And, and so then I, I create, I create something that is uh, a loop that I can use that I know is a loop. And then I pipe it into the analog system, right? And so. So you'll export something into like back out to like a VHS tape or. Yeah. So basically, I've built out this, this video rig that I call it my video altar because it's like, where the magic happens, right? It's like, I really do feel like an alchemist when I'm working because I've acquired all these various devices. I have, like I said, a lot of it's just consumer gear. Some of it's like professional gear, like old studio equipment. Yeah. I have a, a few devices that are like custom built glitch hardware devices. Oh. But yeah, like by makers, always want to give credit to my tool makers like Tachyons Plus and BPMC are both, these these incredible tool makers who build these glitch devices. And so I've incorporated uh, some of their gear into my system. And uh, yeah, and so basically I bring it all out for my computer. I can I use a converter to convert an HDMI signal out to an analog signal. Like so that's where it all starts. That I once I've made the digital animation, I pipe it into this analog system. You basically when you're doing the pipe out, you're in you're in a still pretty high high resolution state at this point, right? So uh-huh. when, you're, when you're looking at this, we're not seeing like the electric dream that we see today. We're seeing something that is, like you said earlier, that 4K, that 8K, that like really crispness, right? Totally. You, is that what it is? Okay. And then so you're like, totally. okay, let the analog degrade it a little bit. Yeah. And that that's what I mean by like the magic, right? Is And that's what I was saying about glitch as an aesthetic is the art of taking away rather than the art of adding. The art of decaying rather than the art of building is, yeah. is it's like, right, I'm taking something that's very high resolution. And again, so much of it at this point, and I think there are a number of people who work with the kind of kind of hardware I use and the kind of style I do, but I don't think I'm remiss to say that I, I've really made a name for myself among the glitch art community and and of course now the greater art community at large because 
I have developed such a symbiosis with my tools Mm -hmm. that, right, if you saw the original digital animation that I start with, you would not recognize it. You would not, Mm. you would not recognize it as necessarily the original that becomes Electric Dream. And that's, Mm. and so that's why I feel I've always been very, as best I can, I've done a lot of knowledge share in my time and because I've learned from others. So people are interested in this. They can, look me up, look up my activity on Facebook and and see like that I, I believe in like the sharing of tools. I, I always say to people, the reason why is because it's the witch, it's not the wand, right? Like the same the same tool in a different person's hands, like they wouldn't do the same thing with it. Right. And, oh, that's so cool that you're open to that because I know there's a lot of artists out there that they have certain techniques and certain algorithms and things like that and they will only keep those for themselves and, and sure. I, I can see why. Right. But that, that's, that's cool that it's the witch, not the wand. That's is that? Did you come up with that? That's yeah, amazing. I came up with that. Thank so you. Good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is I, that an NFT anywhere? That should be one it, of your. It is. Like, is it, it is actually. No way. It's, it's an earlier text. Oh, there uh, it is. Text NFT of mine. Yeah. Oh man. Because yeah, it's been a saying of mine for a long time, and it's there's a lot. Look, it, that that saying itself packs a lot of meaning. Like I'm a queer woman, right? So like I, I believe a lot in the sense of like it's not the tool that makes the magic happen. Okay, like that. Like you can you can really use your will to enact incredible things in this world. And you're not limited by the, you're not limited by biology. You're not limited by capability. You're not limited like that really it's all comes down to will. It all comes down to do what thou wilt. that you get to be the alchemist of your own life. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's that. And look, uh, I will say it's why I do typically say, oh yes, I have this analog rig I've built do I particularly want to tell everyone exactly which device I've hooked to which other device? No, I don't. Because I, like any artist, I have a right to protect what I've come up with. That the way I'm hooking it all together and the way I'm doing it is proprietary to me. You know, like, yeah. I don't really particularly want to volunteer exactly how to get the aesthetic I have. Sure. Uh, because... I already, like I said, I already have imitators and my, my feeling on it is, look, imitation's the highest form of flattery. I've seen a lot of artists who began imitating me who've also evolved to really have their own voice too. And yeah. I, I think that's wonderful. I, I agree with that. I, I see that a lot. Actually, it, it seems to be a pretty common thing. Like they, they always, I think XCopy said it one time because he has that famous right-click save as guy. Uh-huh, yeah. And like he said something about, well, we all started as right-clicking and save asing at some point, exactly, right? Like we, exactly. We all opened up somebody else's artwork and say, how did they do this? You know? Totally. And, and in my case, like in my early years of gift making, I did a lot of what you'd call like remixing, right? A lot of like using just other stuff I was finding on Tumblr, remixing it into my work. I did a lot of that. And only once or twice did I have anyone be like, hey, you used my thing. You can't call that your thing. And and I look back on it now and I'm like, they were, they had every right to say that to me. The difference back then was I wasn't making any money from any of it. Right. And so that's my view on like, remixes because this is a obviously a problem i've had a lot my, my work has gotten like almost 7 billion views on giphy constantly i have the issue of my work turns up in other people's work where it's like of course you like that background that you used for your artwork because it's my art <laughs> you're right. using my art in your art and my feeling on that is like intention is everything. And if it's someone who, just like myself a decade ago, is just figuring things out, is they're making collages because they're teaching themselves Photoshop, whatever, 
look, I, I, I got started remixing too. But if I see you selling it as an NFT, that's not cool, man. You can't do that. Yeah. That's, the, the artists, people need to understand what fair use entails. Like fair use means if you are remixing something, you're remixing it in a way that adds meaning or changes the meaning and is somehow cult- like significant in that way. Like if you take a clip from TV and you remix it in a way that's like a comment on fucking culture, man. Okay, that's fair use. And you could sell that as art. But right. taking another artist's art, like... It'd be like taking, I don't know, if I took an Andy Warhol and wrote my name on it and was like, this is my art now. And there actually is an artist who did that. It was a, a female artist and I can't think of her name where that was her whole thing is she just painted Warhols. Like she painted the exact thing over again and she was selling them. It was it's, Crazy. A, fa- it's a fascinating story. I wish I could remember her name. Was, she, just, was she any good at it or was it yeah, like... Well, yeah, that was the thing. It was like they were expert forgeries uh, and it was, it, was, it was Warhol, it was Rauschenberg, it was Oldenburg. It was like all these male artists and she was replicating them, ex- their work exactly and then doing shows and that was the art. The art was the forgery that she know, was that's so, taking credit for it. That's like, always so confusing to me. Did you ever see that movie? There's a documentary about this this kid, I mean, really young kid that basically could take cheap wine and mix it in a way that it, and it was created in forgeries of like $4,000 bottles of wine and selling them at an auction and no oh, one could tell the difference. Because he had the palate it was just so uh-huh. dialed in that he could go and mix all these different wines and make these like perfect like forgeries of these wines. It's like, dude, if you have this much talent, what do you do in forging <laughs> stuff? Like you should be a winemaker or something, you know? That's it's so like, fascinating. That's exactly what people said about this woman, that they were like, the fact that she has the technical ability to easily replicate so many other artists' work, that's her art form. But, but, we look at someone like that and you go, do I find that person as impressive or as interesting to me as a visionary coming up with new artwork? I don't, I personally don't, but I, but I do think it's interesting that someone possesses that technical capability. But yeah, it, it's, it's that. It's all to say that because of course these conversations come up. I was getting ripped off on Rarible a lot last fall. Like, and, and by ripped off, I mean like there was one where someone sold something and they made a lot of money off of it, like tens of thousands of dollars where they took one of my most well-known pieces and they slapped like a black and white image of Vitalik Buterin on it. And they were selling this thing. And people, of course, were buying it because they were like, wow, that's so cool looking. And it's like, yeah, because it's Sarah's art. <laughs> like, it's did people not- call it out? Did they, did they try and take it down? Or what happened there? So I call... And I... Look, look, Kevin, I am very pragmatic about how I use Twitter. I do not raise the alarms unless it's something where like it really makes sense to do that. I rarely get up on my high horse about things because it's just more trouble than it's worth most of the time. Yeah. But with this one, I said, I view when it's something like this where I go, people are getting cheated. That right. that pisses me off. I'm much more likely to help other people not get cheated than I am to like get on Twitter and lay someone on blast for something they did to me directly. So I got on Twitter. I was like, hey, everybody, you need to... And this was happening a lot last fall on Rarible specifically, where I was like, hey, don't buy this piece. The reason you like it is that's my artwork. And they just put... This is not... I do not feel that this passes the muster of fair use. Right. Because the reason you all like it is it's my beautiful abstract piece. And then they just put this this quick slap Photoshop of Vitalik on it and you all like it. So I called it out and wouldn't... I had people really like laying into me, how dare you? This space is the Wild West in a lot of ways. And for a lot of people, it's like they take the do what thou 
ethos to an extreme. And people were were really coming for me saying, how dare you tell these people they're not allowed to remix your work? And I, and, I, and I basically said, I never said they're not allowed to remix it. I said they're not allowed to remix it and sell it because right. it's clearly a bad actor. It's clearly being done in bad faith. And even if you give this person the benefit of the doubt that they it didn't occur to them that just because they found it on Giphy doesn't mean it's theirs to use and then sell. Even if you give them that benefit of the doubt that, that they didn't mean to, it, they still need to be stopped. They need to be told what they're doing is wrong. There are plenty of things people do that are illegal that they don't realize are illegal <laughs> that they still right. need to be held accountable for. We all have oopsies that we have to learn the hard way. Yeah, what you just did is illegal. Don't do that. And so, yeah, I, I was, I guess I wasn't shocked because look, I've been on the internet a long time, but I was disheartened by how many, how many men decided they need to put me in my place that I was upset that someone was stealing my work. Yeah. I'm sorry you had to go through that. That's that. What a brutal thing. You have to imagine that this is just going to become more of an issue because anyone armed with Photoshop and a browser can essentially go out and publish and take and copy and remix anything they want. And then you have to think, well, well, gosh, there's a lot of places, well, there's all, all countries will have people like this, but there's, there's a lot of places where there, there's a, a kind of like this, this culture of intellectual theft uh-huh. and things of that nature. And th- that would, it wouldn't surprise me to see a lot more of this happening in, in a knockoff fashion because there's quick money to be made there. Yeah. Like if, even if someone can make a half a ETH on something and get under the radar and they don't, mm-hmm. they're not on the front page, but they're just like somebody bit a half a ETH on it, that could be life-changing money for someone depending on where they yeah. live, right? So, or even make their month. So it's like, uh, gosh, I, I, this is going to be a real issue. Oh, it's one of the biggest... I think, philosophical and ethical um, questions that we all engaged in NFTs have to think about because like, so what the story I'm telling you, this was, this would have been like September of 2020. The space was probably like one tenth the size it, it is now that when I rang the alarm bells, I mean, it was, it was handled in a day and everyone knew about it. And we already are at the point where there are so many people engaged in this, that it's, it's different now that it, it, things are much harder to sort of curtail in that way. Yeah. Well, think about all the other chains that are coming online, right? right. You got Tezos and you got Hin and you have almost every other blockchain is in some capacity going to support a marketplace that has NFTs. Right. It's going to be impossible to track this across all these, all these chains. It's just going to be chaos. And it's, it's, it, strikes at the core of the decentralization versus centralization argument, right? On platforms like Nifty Gateway or Super Rare, you don't have this issue because every single seller has been vetted and and is known to be someone who's selling their own work. Now I say that there have been one or two instances. I myself, something I collected back in 2019, I just got a DMCA takedown email from Super Rare saying, we discovered this thing you collected. This guy was minting stuff that wasn't his artwork. Oh, wow. And I, I mean, I collected this thing two years ago. I think I paid $7 for it. So, so you're I wasn't, okay. Right. I was like, I'm not particularly heartbroken in the pocketbook, but it is like, oof, like it still is this, it just is an icky feeling. I mean, there was the whole, I, I mean, I don't want to get into the other specifics. People can look it up if they want to. That, that there have been a, a one or two instances of people who've been revealed to be, if not outright, like stealing uh, things from the internet, they've been revealed to be not representing 
their artwork properly or like that it was they were they were essentially like completely imitating another art artist and but beyond these one or two anomalies the the gated platforms like that that's that's why i think the work sells for more it's why you just have more trust among the collectors because collectors can trust if it's on this platform it has been really really vetted by a team of curators now i'm not saying that's that's the best way. I, I'm definitely someone who who I I've released work on almost every of the one of the major platforms. I've released work on Rarible. I've released work on OpenSea. I've released work on Hiccut Nunk because I have believed from the get go. Uh, while Super Rare is, I would say Super Rare is my central platform. They've been very good to me, and I really, really still am am impressed by the level of quality. And the level of attention to detail, it's not easy to be the front runner in a space like this. You yeah. always have everyone nipping at your heels always. And I, I really can't speak highly enough of super rare, but I've, I've been from the get go. I felt it's been very important as an artist to be platform agnostic because not everyone can be on super rare. One platform cannot be asked to serve everyone's needs in a community mm-hmm. this large. That's and right. I felt it's, I don't want to say my duty, my God, who do I think I am? But like, I felt it's important for me just to understand the growing scope of the space to release work, even if it's only a little bit of work on every platform, so that I know how that platform operates so that I am feeling like, oh, okay, I get what this platform's about. I need to have skin in the game, right? right? Like You can't judge it without participating. And so I participate as both an artist and a collector in, in a lot of these platforms. Have you messed around with async at all? I have. I have one layer that I released on Async as part of a large collab called the the Night Watch that, God, that must have been back in like, I don't know, April or May at this point. It was like a 38 artist collab that I was invited to be part of based on Rembrandt's The Night Watch. And I contributed a layer. So I, I am... I am whitelisted for async. I am waiting for, I think they will inevitably have to add like video or animation support at some point. It's, it's the thing I was saying at at the top of this episode, right? That my work as a still, I just feel doesn't, it does a disservice to it. So I'm waiting for them. The second they add gift support, you can expect my async, my async Genesis, because if I could arrange my gift layers, then I could really do something cool with async. Yeah, so for people that don't know, async is a platform that allows user contribution in some sense, right? Like you can, almost like Photoshop has layers of their artwork, you can say, here are five different pieces of my artwork that all kind of collapse together to create this one piece, but people can modify and make changes. Is that, am I, I haven't yeah. participated in it yet. Is that is that the right understanding? Yes, that is true. It's the owner, the owner. So, so what's cool about async also is like a person can own the master layer, which is like the complete artwork, but then you can have all these other sub owners who own layers of the artwork and whoever owns the layer is the one who gets to make the change. And I think that's a really cool way of sort of manifesting the relationship between artists and collectors in the space that we really are. We're always doing this dance, right? Of like, I know I was here in the early years where it was mostly other artists collecting the work. And I I like to say we were like fraggles passing a pebble back and forth to each other. Like I'd make 50 bucks and I'd I'd give that 50 bucks to another artist and they'd give it to another artist. And we'd all talk about it on the Super Rare Telegram that it's like this, this, the whole thing we're doing right now is all an experiment right now because there's no actual 
money coming in. It's all just us kind of passing the buck back and forth to each other. But we'd all go, man, the second we get collectors in this space, like real collectors, like a, a larger collector base than we have now, that's when it's really going to take off. And that's that's exactly what has now happened. Is- I, I think it's still early days. Like in, in my talks and my kind of profession in the VC world, institutional money, it, once there is proper custody, because a lot of these big high net worth you know, family offices and and they can't they have rules around how they hold ob- digital mm-hmm. assets and so a lot of them have to rely on these what's called SOC 1 and SOC 2 compliant like custody houses so that's like Coinbase custody and there's a few of the other big ones out there once Coinbase offers custody for, of NFTs they're, they're, it's just going to I mean they'll Look they will out. be there literally be billions <laughs> of dollars pouring into the yeah. space it's just going to be nuts yeah um, it's it's really interesting and it, you're bringing up a point that I I am like always trying to point out to artists who are newer to the space because there's such a proliferation of platforms right now. And I feel like every day I'm getting an email from, hi, we're a new NFT platform. We'd really love to have you on our platform. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think, like I said, we need more platforms to serve how many artists there are in the space. But the thing I always want to hammer home to people is if these new platforms are not also bringing in new collectors all they are doing is diluting what we already have. And and I say this as someone, look, I sold my work at Sotheby's. I sold my work at Bonham's. I had a good experience doing that. My work at Sotheby's was bought by someone, uh, 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 Token Angels, who already is one of my one of my biggest collectors. And then at Bonham's, I was like the only artist. My work was bought by someone who was, a, who was brought in by Bonham's, a new collector to the space. And it was like, this huge deal of like, that's new. That doesn't happen very often. Right. The people who collect, even at the auction houses, are people who are already collecting NFTs typically. So it's still that fraggle pebble just on a slightly, <laughs> it's a slightly bigger, shinier pebble than it used to be. It, it's that's, I, I don't know. It's I, I say that to artists because I have learned that from experience, I guess, as having been one of the first artists on a new platform uh, a few, one or two times. And then realizing, wait, what they're getting from me is that I'm bringing my collectors from other platforms to them, but they're not necessarily bringing new collectors to me as an right, artist. Right. This is and, all the upside is for the platform. Yeah. And I, and I guess it's that you learn, you learn these things sometimes the hard way that you learn by doing it and going, Oh, you have to like analyze after the fact and be like, I'm actually much better served sticking with the platform that sort of made this all happen for me to begin with. And again, like I said, it's nothing against the new platforms. It's just that I have really started to notice how so many of them, I, I, I when I, when they email me or if I do agree to meet with them, I sort of go, what's your value proposition for me here? I hear what you're going to get from me. I know you want me. I know you've seen my sales record. I've worked very, very hard to establish a collector base for myself and be always sort of uh, building in this space. This is my life's work, right? What are you as a new platform bringing to me? I, I'm not hearing here at all what I get out of this other than I'm taking a huge risk on you. Because also you don't know with a new platform, they might make choices that you don't agree with. And they might go in a direction that then it ends up seeming like you uh, vouched for them or that you in some way are... You're putting your reputation on the line with people who, unless they're offering you a share of their platform, I don't see the value to me as, as an artist in the space. Yeah, that's fair. So 
podcast. If anything, new platforms introduce risk for artists that are, like you said earlier about people copying and moving their stuff over there. Like, for example, I, there was one time on Han when I went on there and somebody was saying, oh, it's an X copy one of one. Oh. And I was like, oh, X copy's doing something over here. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's mm-hmm. interesting. It was interesting from a collector standpoint because I'm like, well, there's not a lot of collectors on this platform. Yeah. Maybe I should jump on this and, and pick this one up. And then I, I think one thing we should cover real quick is just how to do the proper validation, know that something uh-huh. is real. And like for me, that means going to the Discord, the actual official Discord of XCopy, uh-huh. asking people there that are in the know, asking the moderators there, does XCopy actually list stuff here? Is this authentic? Paste the link in. Do at replies to artists and ask them, like, is there, is there anything else that I'm missing or are those the kind of the main ways to... to- no, I'd say that's that's a, a great way. And I, I myself am actually starting a Discord channel soon because <laughs> I realized that exact thing of as you rise, people people have a vested interest in knocking you off and, and selling these sort of counterfeits. So that's one of the primary reasons for me that I am starting a Discord channel for my work now that I have a fairly substantial and and eager collector base. I, I think it's like, look, it's like anything. It, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. So yeah, I think also it's that Discord and, and really Twitter. We're all on Twitter. I know XCopy for one is always having to say to people, I'm not on Instagram. If someone is following you on Instagram who you think is me, it's not me. And Instagram is obviously not uh, an NFT platform, but I know for myself, like I was having a, a bear of a time earlier this year with people impersonating me on Discord and on Instagram and trying to get people to buy foundation invites. And yeah. it was it was like a nightmare for me because I was get my my inbox was full every day of people either mad at me because they thought I had scammed them or making sure I knew someone was impersonating me or just whatever it was. And it was like, oh my God, I didn't ask for this. Like this, this is not great. And I, I really, like I said, I, I think for me, I, I feel very sensitive about the feeling of, I never want other people to feel like, I never want other people to get cheated in, in involved in something that has anything in any way that they think has to do with me. Obviously that I wasn't doing that, but realizing someone was impersonating me and it was making people think, oh, Sarah, Sarah took advantage of me and it's like I didn't that wasn't me right. it's a scammer and then, um, and then it's a, they're just a DM away from if someone's following a fake account of saying hey I just launched in this new platform why don't uh-huh. you go collect me here you know right precisely so it's all to say right like it's like anything right I think a lot of people there was a spate of people getting money stolen because they were instead of typing in OpenSea's URL they were like Goog- they Google OpenSea and then they click the first link and someone had paid Google ads to get the scam OpenSea up at the top of Google and a ton of people had their wallets emptied from that. So it's just to say like, and it's, it's that, right? I have had a lot of artists who are not in the space ask me, Hey, I saw this. Should I, should I be selling my work as NFTs? And I always say to them, maybe, m- maybe, but I say you need to be someone who's really really confident in your own right. technical ability. There's no yes. tech support here. Yes. That's what I always say. I had, I've had, I've had people ask me and I, and I, I, I it's that thing of, I don't want to be condescending to them or I don't want to insult them. But that's why I say, yes, you, there's, it's, it's, you can really do incredible things if you're well suited to this. If you need to be so honest with yourself, if you are not well suited to it, you could really get scammed you could really get hurt you could really like things could happen there are there's stuff out there and so you need to know that you're someone who can be on top of that and isn't 
going to try to call tech support because maybe there's yeah. no tech support. Well, I, th- I honestly, I love the, not that this has to be a super rare love fest, but like they created this new idea just a few days ago of these spaces that actually mm-hmm. kind of galleries or individuals can represent other artists. So you could, mm-hmm. in some sense, have someone that's really technically savvy come in and say, hey, 20, 30, 50 artists that I know well that don't understand this world, let me help you onboard you, get your stuff on here and, and, and represent it in a proper way. And of course, there's like the, any traditional, they'll take some of that fee as well. Yeah. But at least it, it'll be a safer way to onboard people because there's no way that someone like Superware could do it for for all the great artists out there. Totally. There's a lot of people there. I think, yeah, I think it's a great, great addition to the space. It's a great idea because you're absolutely right. There are a ton of people who do work that would that does make sense as NFTs, but not everyone is cut out to be like what it is to be someone in my position or Matt Kane or Coley or any of these people. You are wearing the hat hats of like 10 different people. Like I am my own manager. I am my own publicist. I am my own gallerist. All of these very important full-time jobs on top of the fact that I also need to be this this little dreamer coming up with yeah. art. <laughs> you're like, you're a crazy startup. You're every, yeah. every piece of it. Uh, one one question I, I had about one of your works of art. Who is uh-huh. who, is your cat's name Loaf? So no, my cat's name is Ginny, short Ginny. for Virginia. Because yeah. there's a few NFTs you have, at least two that I found with with your cat in them. Is, so that is your cat. Yes, that is my cat, my beloved cat Ginny. She is the light. Her and my wife are the are the lights of my life, and they came as a package deal. Lucky me. And uh, yes, Ginny is my cat. She is. Look, I've 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 always been a lover of animals, cats and dogs, and I, I gotta say she's she's just a special one. I say she's like the Miss Piggy of cats. Like this cat just has so much personality and she's just such a frequent fixture in my studio, right? That like if I'm setting up a backdrop, that cat's on top of that backdrop. <laughs> like she is it was just very present with me. And so yeah, this is what I mean by when I said that I see my work as almost like this ongoing story of personal revelation. It's like sometimes it's big concepts I'm chewing on, like things like ancient future or recursion or and sometimes it's just much more personal about like this is what this time looked like in my studio. Like the pieces the with my I call her loaf because when she when a cat tucks their paws they, under yeah, like and little they loaf, yeah. look like a little loaf. And so it's become just this ongoing, especially just the way I'm working with her in front of these backdrops, even if she's not even if she's not in loaf position, I just think it's so funny. Like I, I relate to that, right? As like, as a person exploring the newly formed metaverse, that's how I feel. Like I am this silly little creature just like hurtling through space time, looking around at all of it, being like, whoa, <laughs> this is crazy. And that's like, kind of the effect it has when I do these these pieces with my cat. How did and, you do the one? There's, I see one here at the very bottom, portrait of, of the cat in digital decay. And that is a trippy one with, yeah. with Ginny in there. How did, yeah. you, how did you pull that one off? So so the, the portraits in digital decay, I'm glad you asked me about that. This is what I was saying, how I'm often associated with analog video art, but I work with like like I said, I'm a I'm a tinkerer, I'm a builder. So I have like all these cool kooky styles I work with. And that series, the Digital Decay series is like, again, it's bridging my photography practice that it starts with like stereoscopic photography. And so, so it starts as a photo, but a 3D photo. And then I use like neural style transfer to give it like the texture and then I and then I pixel sort it. And so it's again, it's it's similar to my VHS art in that I think 
I, I'd like to think one of my gifts is just I have a feeling for color and texture that's very unique and has become very recognizable. And so it's a way, again, of taking what starts as a very crisp, stereoscopic photo. And by the time I'm done with it, you're still getting the depth. You're still getting the stereoscopic effect. But I've created all of these colors and painterliness to it but that I'm painting with pixels, right? So I'm painting with digital decay, essentially. And in that series, I have... It was actually my first piece ever on Known Origin that I think I I joined Known Origin around the same time as Super Rare in around like April of 2019. So I only have one single edition on Known Origin and it's self-portrait and digital decay. I I think that's what it's called. (laughs) Don't quote me on that. And then I had another one that I did later at the end of 2019 that was another self-portrait in that same style. And it's a style I still I still work with. I, I And then I did one at the end of 2020 where I warped it even further that I applied like a time displacement effect to it. So it still has depth, but it's also really warpy and wavy to kind of reflect the fact that 20, I, the photo, be, the work began, I began it in January of 2020 when everything was still normal. And it was like a work of art that, 2020 was a crazy year. <laughs> and so yeah. I sort of like let let it go, didn't do anything with it. And then re, like at several points throughout the year, found it and was like, oh, I want to work on this a little more. And then I think I minted it in December of 2020 being like, and I wanted it to have that effect of just being so like, this is what this year did to me, that the the image began in January. And by the end of the year, the image got as warped as I did. It's but yeah, a- yeah, it's a really cool technique. Thank you. Yeah. Do you use Procreate or the iPad at all for anything that you do? Or is it mainly like computer with analog equipment? Yeah, it's, you know, I have an iPad and I, for some reason, have just never found the touch for like drawing on it. I, I always end up, <laughs> I've gotten all these programs and I always end up getting frustrated. And this is what I mean by like, I don't have an education in, <laughs> in art I don't really use, I I use my iPad for some things. There are some, some apps, some little, you know, whatever that sometimes I'll have an idea and I'll be like, Ooh, I can do that little thing with that app. Mm -hmm. But I primarily do, especially now, like I was saying, as our techniques evolve over the years, I moved away from using apps very often. I want to do things where I really have much more control and where people aren't looking at it and going, Oh, she did that thing in that app. I know what app, I know what app she used. We all see art like that where even if it's cool, you're like, yeah, I know what app you use to do that. And what I'm seeing that's cool is really more the cool thing that app does than your cool right. thing. Yeah, that's a great point. That is actually a big piece of, of, of I think, that needs editorial-wise. I, I think uh-huh. about creating content eventually for my site. And I, I want to... It is very easy these days to take like built-in functionality of some of these very powerful apps uh-huh. and make really cool stuff. But it's like... For sure. It literally is someone spending 30 seconds and hitting export versus doing the hard work or something right. unique and, and novel that is not a, a, a default brush, right? Right. And this comes back to what I was saying about it's the witch, not the wand, because I'm sure there are people listening to this right now going, I use apps. Oh, God, what right. does this mean? <laughs> and and I'm not trying to make anyone feel like you can't do that. You absolutely there are ways to do use any tool creatively. There are ways to use any tool and use it in a way where people go, wow, that's really something new. I haven't seen that. And that's what I mean by if I do use apps, 
you're never going to look at it and go, I know what app she used. It's right. like, I'm, I'm going to use so many of them and I'm going to mix them with my own techniques in a way where by the end you'll go, oh, that's so, that's so Sarah and right. not that's so that app that I could get for well, 99 also, cents. You, you probably won't be able to ever deconstruct it and figure out exactly what the combination of things to create the end output at right. that point. Right. But you know what's I, funny is this is a, a random story, but I, I actually had a chance to go over to Trent Reznor's house maybe a few years back and and he was like, hey, do you want to see my studio? Because we were meeting about something else. And he has a studio in his house. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, are you kidding yeah. me? Like, of course I want to see your <laughs> yeah. studio. Yeah. So I was like, but I played it off. I'm like, yeah, sure. If you have time, you're like, oh, let's check it out. <laughs> right. So we go and we like go down to his studio. And when he opens the door, it is like literally like 50 pieces of analog equipment mm-hmm. with like wires going everywhere. And like, I'm like looking inside his brain. Yeah. And I'm like, holy crap like that is the there's the art right there like like there's the there's the wand i guess right like it's totally and it's like but it was a mixture of so it wasn't some clean like pro tools setup that Uh is just like nice and tidy you know it was like it was Mm -hmm. uh, chaos but out of that chaos just comes such beauty when when you know how to work yep. the, the the tools and use his mind to create something. It sounds like you have a very similar process where oh. it's just like a bunch of random things that you bring together. Totally. And yet, right. And the cool thing about that, and again, like I said, I'm not I'm not super quick to show everyone here's exactly what I use and how I hook it all up and how it it's like, okay, allow me to keep my the magician doesn't have to show you how the trick works. I don't because then it ruins the magic trick. Let me have my magic. But also, if you did get every single one of those devices Trent Reznor has, you could still never make what no Trent way. Reznor can make because no he has way. a brilliant mind that has a singular way of creating music. And and yes, I'd like to think, at least I'm always in the process of furthering that for myself, of furthering how much it's like, right, you could get my, all my gear. It, it's funny, I, you saying that I used to do like VJing, like when I first got into video, one of my big things I was always doing was I was doing like live visuals for bands here in Los Angeles. And it's it's like funny to me. I, I think about it now how without fail, every time I would do play a show, right? And I'd usually be in like the DJ booth. And and like I said, I did it live because I it's much easier to do visuals live with a band, especially like I said, I'm a drummer. So I a lot of what I would do would be rhythmic to go with the music. Well, you can't do, you don't want the band to have to feel like they have to hit some beat to make sure they're playing with a pre-recorded visual, right? So it would always trip people out because they'd be like, how the hell are these videos? How is the video moving with the music? Right. How is, how is it in counter rhythm? Like, what is it? And it's like, oh, cause there's a video drummer hanging out in the right. DJ booth who's like playing with the drummer right now, but I'm just playing colors and rainbows and pictures. I'm not playing a drum. Yeah. And that, uh, man, that flaming, my, I remember my first flaming lip show that oh. I went to. And I was just like, I was just like, oh my God, this is so good. I think I had like taken an edible at the time and I was Uh just like, I love this. Yeah. Yeah. Bless, bless the stoned, the many stoned attendees of my, of my early shows. Cause right. People would come up and just be like, you just took me to Nirvana. And I'm like, I know, man, it's, it's cool. That was my intention. I'm, I'm happy I took you there. But, but yeah, I'd have, I'd inevitably every show I'd have. It's I could spot them. I knew who it was going to be. Usually the gear guy and like musicians get this too. gear guy where after the show, they sidle on up to you and they're like, hey, yeah. Hey, what what kind of gear you got? What's that gear you got? What do you you use? What are you using there? 
And and every time without fail, I'd be like, oh, I'm using this Adderall mixer and I'm using and they go, oh, yeah, I got that. I have the higher model of that. I have the better one. Yeah, I, I love it. And you're like and you I always would be like, cool, man. Yeah. Good, good, good for you. Like, good, good job. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of work? Yeah. What kind of art are you making? You know what I mean? Like the gear guy usually is so fixated on this, the, the badge of like, I got the better gear than you. Right. And, the technical and I, specs versus right. sitting down and like doing the yeah. creative thing with. I got the rarer one. I got the one that they, you can only get in Japan. And I'd be right. like, cool. Well, thanks. Like, yeah, I mean, did you, how are you making any art with it though? Like, what are you, is it sitting there collecting dust? Like usually with, with the gear guy. So uh, it's just my point is to say that while the gear is of course exciting and I like anyone get excited about my toys and my tools, it's, it's that I, I really believe that my greatest gift as an artist is my vision, right? My inner vision. And that's something that I, I just remind myself like, People can imitate my technique all they want. They're never going to have my ideas. They're never going to have my brain. Yeah, that's so true. At least until the computers take over and I upload my consciousness. But until then, my brain you is You have mine. at least another five years. <laughs> so I want to do a quick little... Before we wrap things up, I'd love to do a quick little like quick question Q&A, like, like really fast, throw some random stuff at you and just get your take on it. You, you, did, you down to play that oh, game? Oh, I'm, I'm down to clown. Okay, so... <laughs> What is one mainstream artist, like big artist, that you can't afford, but you would love to? First answer that comes to mind is Nan Golden, a, Nan photog- Golden. a, a photographer. I have, I just, it's a, she's a kindred spirit, at least for my photography side. I saw she has had a slideshow at the Museum of Modern Art in New York called The Ballad of Sexual Dependency that I saw in 2009. And it was one of those one of those art moments, one of those aesthetic experiences, I think I was like weeping. I think I went back to see it like three times and it was like shown in this dark room and and I would like go and sit in this dark room and just like cry. And she just has a lot in common with me. She's this queer Jewish woman and she was just photographing her life in New York in the 80s. So she was friends with a lot of drag queens, a lot of counterculture people. And then, and then in a, in a certain way, as you watch the slideshow, you realize she's also documenting the rise of the AIDS crisis. And so you're mm. witnessing these incredible, vibrant people and witnessing them deteriorate. And it's, I, I'm like talking about her and I have goosebumps. It's so potent. I just, if you've ever seen the movie or heard of the movie High Art, which was directed by Lisa Cholodenko, it's ba- there's a character played by Ali Sheedy who's based on, on Nan Golden, this, this photographer. And she's just someone I would, I like dream of meeting one day. Like, even though my art has taken such a different path from my photography years, she's just like always been a hero of mine. And I sort of dream of the day when I'll be able to, to collect some of her work. That's awesome. How about on the NFT side? Is there any artists that you look at and you're like, gosh, I'd, I'd love to have one of these in my collection? Oh, yeah. Well, I do have an X copy. X copy is one of them for me, especially. <laughs> no, I've mentioned, I've mentioned X copy like a hundred times in this interview. X copy and I sort of came up on Tumblr together. Like, yeah. so we're sort of of this same era. And I think it's so incredible to see the, the success and the, and the celebration around, around his work. It's crazy. Um, I actually did something. Well, I found his Tumblr account, which was uh-huh, nuts. And, uh-huh. and yet you're right. You can go back like years and years and yeah. years. Like, he hasn't changed. He's been doing this for a long yep. time before he was making any money doing it. Yep. Yep. And I, and I, same right there with him. You is know? there like a Tumblr crew? Like, is there, you know, yeah. is there, are there, are there like, oh, yeah, there's a huge Tumblr to NFT pipeline, you know, oh, wow, a, bu- a bunch of us sort of, but I, I, I actually don't know like 
what demographic X copy falls into. But a lot of us, I'd say, are like sort of vaguely millennials who who really like got our art practices going on Tumblr in like from 2007 to 2015, I'd say, as a mm. as a ballpark estimate. Like that for me, I used to think the I used to call Tumblr was the engine room of my art practice because I was always experimenting, creating things and I'd throw I'd throw things up on Tumblr. And that was how I kind of got a feel for like, what do people like? Because if it was because people would reblog it or like it and um, not not that that's the only work you should create. But I think it's the same as been for a long time. Instagram played that role for me as well. I like people did dailies for, for a while. Again, I like the I like the feedback loop between the creator and the audience, right? I don't think that I think the creator should be the one in the driver's seat. I think that you have to be unafraid to try new things, try things that where you go, oh, nobody liked that. Okay, well now I know because you're. But I always would end up being surprised by like something that I just noodled out and then it's like goes viral versus something I slaved over for months and then it gets ten likes, you know, mm. and it's. And and I think that that is just valuable information as a creator. Again, like I'm saying, I don't think that how it's received should dictate what you do necessarily, like in in a powerful way. But I, I definitely think there's there's just value in that feedback loop, and that's what I always liked about Tumblr. And those of us who came up on Tumblr, I think I, I could go out on a limb and say they probably agree with that sentiment, and that we were all supporting each other, right? Seeing each other's work. That's so X copies one, and the other one's probably Matt Kane. Matt's at this point, I'd say a good friend of mine. We were very fortunate that we can like commiserate with each other and, and sort of talk about what goes on behind the scenes with some of these things we've seen over the past two plus years. Just what a stand up guy and someone I think we're, we're so lucky to have in this space. Like he's always sort of my beacon of like, what is the right thing to do? Like Matt Kane does the right thing. And, and that's, that's just who he is as a person. I also would want to collect his art because it's phenomenal. Like, Again, someone whose practice could not be more different from mine in some ways. <laughs> like he's his attention to detail and like again, yeah, he's built this custom software where you know it's a Matt Kane as soon as you see it. So yeah, those are those are two that spring to mind. And then I'll I'll say one third one who is Killer Acid, who I do actually have a physical Killer Acid piece. I just can't. I like have loved Killer Acid's work since like I, since I discovered it in like 2010 or 2011 and. Another person who I, I'd like to think of as a friend who I just think is a great, great guy, but his work is just, it just does it for me. I, I just love it. I love psychedelic, weird, grotesque, cool stuff like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, continuing to the rapid questions. What about virtual worlds kind of metaverses? Is that something you're bullish on? Is it something you can see yourself building for? It is something I am bullish on, definitely, while I also recognize it's not what I'm called to put a lot of my my power into. Like, I, I'll be there for sure. I'll show up to your thing in crypto voxels and Decentraland. <laughs> like, I get it. And I'm, I'm obviously savvy enough to participate. But when it comes to building it, I... I think I just get it's just for whatever reason it doesn't speak to my skill set. So so I've I just kind of view it and I'm like, I'm I'm glad this exists. And I could see myself participating in like a larger project if I were brought on as part of a team, but it is not, it's just not something I really I, I it take it would take me away from my stuff, my my video and my writing and and the other stuff I want to do too much. It would take up too much of my time. 
That makes sense. I mean, it, that world to me, it's, uh, you're right. It sucks you in. And then all of a sudden you're like, where did the last few hours go? And I'm walking yeah. around this, these streets and there's people flying by and I'm like, what, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. What what's doing? going on here? Yeah. I, no. But I like you, I'm down to show up for an event. I'll just be a little floating yeah. head somewhere. Yep. that was watching what's going on. <laughs> all right. So one, one last question. If you had to pick just some up and coming artists that aren't that well known, do you have uh, a couple that you, you, that you were drawn to? Sure. Let me again, I'm just going to go off the top of my head. I've really been enjoying the work of Enlight on uh, Hick at Nunk. Another another artist who sort of came up on Tumblr at the same time as I did. He also goes by Disquette Park, which is like, I think that's like his vaporwave music outfit, whose, whose music I've enjoyed. He's doing this really cool stuff with this program called Pico 8. That's like pixel art. It's almost like a Game Boy or something. And he's he's doing these like I guess you call them generative art or like it's like code art, really cool rainbowy pixel art. I'm a sucker for pixel art, Too. even though it, I would not describe my work as it's not really the way I go about my work, but yeah, I, it just gets me. And similarly, Pixel Fool, who I, oh, I don't Pixel know if I, great. yeah, I don't know if you could call Pixel Fool an up and coming artist. Like he's definitely an established artist and and, and like probably kind of well known at this point, but. But still, I'll give it, I'll give him a shout out anyway. And who else? My friend Edgar Fabian Frias, like this is, I'll go in a completely different direction, is this incredible like performance and, and gif artist. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost like I, I've, I almost like can't contain their practice in words. What they do is very, it's like community based. It's, it's witchcraft based. And they started working with NFTs back in the fall. And it's a thing, right? I think things like performance art have not had their moment yet but like especially people who do performance art as video my god what nfts are perfect for that sam j is another artist who who does what i would call maybe like performance art at, that again sam j not an up and coming artist necessarily but but certainly someone i i'm happy to give a shout out to and and in both of these cases that they're these fascinating queer artists that it's only a matter of time right it's again because we have a limited collector base in the space that it's one of the critiques they love to throw around whenever the art magazines or the New York Times writes about crypto art. They love to go, oh, it's just like sci-fi, retro wave, whatever crap. And it's like, well, because it currently the stuff that's really popular reflects the tastes of the very small collector base we have. Mm. And the collector base is already, it's grown so much in the time I've been in it. And I know, I know, I know because of conversations I've had, I know that these uh, arts institutions, institutions that work with time-based media and video art, they want to dip a toe into this. But it's kind of like what you were saying about uh, institutional wealth, right? Of like, they don't really have a means to acquire NFTs yet, but they're investigating it because right. this is the way it's going. I know as someone who does what you would call video art, the way I used to try to sell my work was that I had to put it on a USB drive and I'd sign the USB drive and that would be what a collector would get. It's not a particularly compelling uh, value proposition, a signed USB drive. And so anyone who goes, oh, but an NFT, you can't touch it. You can't feel it. You can't own it. And I'm like, yeah, but again, there's this, the technostic side of things, the gnosis of, well, the immaterial is infinite. There is something that we can all acknowledge that something immaterial has a value that you can't define the same way as you define material items. And it really comes down to, again, a philosophical approach to life. Like, why Why do so many people feel that if it's immaterial, it has no value? Most of the things in this world that have the most value are immaterial things. 
And so it's just all to say Edgar Fabian Frias, Sam Jay, queer performance artists like that, that in the traditional art world, they would have to get grants. They would have to, there's this, this whole pipeline of how artists like that have to get support. Well, now they can release editions of their work, just like I can release editions of my video art in a way that can appeal directly to collectors. The only thing that we're still sort of waiting on is for the collectors who are interested in that kind of work, and they do exist, we're waiting for them to educate themselves about the space and enter this space. So there's your alpha, right? There's your hot tip is look at artists like that who you can still collect their work. It is still approachable. And get in now while you can. Stop, yeah. fight, stop fighting for the, all the stuff that's really sort of very difficult to buy. And, and that's the hot tip is, is broaden your scope a little bit. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's, it's, if you can afford an X copy now, great. But you can, for the same amount of money, you could go and support a lot of smaller artists and up and comers, which I think is a lot of the fun, the hunt and yeah. kind of finding what, you're gravita- what you gravitate towards is, is so much of the fun of this is the discovery aspect. Yeah, it's why it's it's the major advantage I feel I have as an artist who collects. And it's why I, I am always sort of advocating for artists to become collectors if they're able to. I also advocate for if you need to take your money that you made selling your art and, and spend it on your life, do that first. Collecting is it's a luxury. But the reason you should collect as an artist is you have the advantage of an aesthetic awareness that the average person doesn't have, that an artist is much more likely to recognize, oh, that art is really good. Oh, I know that person is doing something completely unique. They're not just using stock models that they bought. They're not just, you know what I mean? Like I recognize it's not just design. I recognize there's an artistic vision and voice behind it. And even if it's going to take two or three years for that person's practice and, and, and collector base to grow... I know I'm getting in on something that I I know I'm I'm banking on something. It's a it's a smart investment strategy. And what you're saying about invest in all these smaller artists. Okay, so if you only buy what you love, even if nine out of the ten things don't go up in value, you still have ten things you love, and you supported ten artists right. that you think are awesome. And then let's say one of those ten things suddenly that person. There's some huge run in their market. Now it is super duper valuable. You see this all the time in the space. I hear collectors of mine say this about my work, that it's like, whoa. And then with one of those things I collected and I hold it for a couple of years and now I've paid off every other thing I've ever collected and then some with the secondary sale of that artwork or just by holding that artwork and knowing I now have this highly valuable asset. It's like you said, it's just a lot more fun to do it that way. Absolutely. It's not, it's not to knock the blue chip stuff. My God, it's that's that has its own merits, of course. And I, I don't know if I'm even... I'm not on an X copy level yet, but I know my work is at a point that like it, it's not in reach for a lot of people already at this point. But it's that. It's it's to say it's it makes sense to look at things that are across the entire spectrum of entry price and stylistic and that's the joy of collecting that's you know yeah 100% i mean it's, it's it is why i am on my computer first thing in the morning before my kids get up it's like i'm, <laughs> I'm like looking and like hunting uh-huh. and finding new stuff and i'm like wow that's cool wow that's yeah. cool it's like it's it's addicting Right, it's like being a little truffle pig, like yeah. snort, snorting oh, out those treasures. By the way, don't watch that movie, Pig. Did you see the truffle no, pig? Don't no, watch I won't. It. It I got, absolutely will not. It, it got it got Nicolas Cage's in it. It got 98% yeah. on Rotten Tomatoes. It is oh, horrible. 
I'm is, sure it is. I can't. I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I okay. can't do it. <laughs> That's good. One one last question. You mm-hmm. mentioned glitch artists. It's been it's been a thing for a while since the Tumblr days and everything. Are there any new genres that you're seeing pop up that you're like, ah, oh, this is interesting. This could be something someday. Or is it is it still just uh, is is kind of glitch the latest and greatest? Wow, what a what a question. I don't know if I I don't know if I have an answer for that. Like I said, it's like I know myself. Like I'll evolve at some point. Like I I'm a Pokemon. I put put a lodestone next to me and I'll I'll evolve yeah. into some new mutation. Like I know that about myself that I'll move on from what I'm currently doing at some point. But but these evolutions happen really organically. And yeah. so I mean to that end, I think what you're saying about like the metaverse, I think is what we're seeing that to me feels very new is the crossover of experiential art, like installation art that now we can do yes. virtually. I think that's something that really interests me, oh, the idea of virtual installation. I was going to tell you, yesterday I saw that there was a virtual installation. It was not one of the metaverses, but it was kind of like the same idea where you click a link, it takes you into a 3D room and there was like this mm-hmm. lobby and I was like, oh, this is beautiful. There's these big wood beams. I can walk around uh-huh. and see this art. I'm like, cool, I want to do this too. I want to set up one for my NFTs. And so I go and I go back to the main screen. It's like, oh, the 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 actual lobby and the place where you're showing off and showcasing your art is an NFT. So you have to own oh. that first. So that's how you own the space. Oh, and I'm like, I want, oh. is that like rare rooms? Yeah, I think it was something yeah. like that. I saw it. I, I uh-huh. tweeted about it. But it, basically, I I was like, okay, cool. Like, I'll just get this one of these like little lobbies, uh-huh, and uh-huh. it was fifty five thousand yeah. dollars for one of these lobbies. And I was like, yeah, you gotta rich, be, rich. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> Even the lobbies are expensive now. It's yeah. just insane. That and there are there are options that aren't <laughs> that aren't that yeah. a sort of hard well, they, to they approach, did have but... some free ones, but they weren't yeah. as cool. This is called right. OnCyber.io. Oh, yeah. If you seen yeah, that one? oh, I didn't. Yeah, I have, and it's funny you say that because I've been thinking about. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll set one of those up at some. This is what I was saying about. I'm not. I'm not that guy. I'm not the one who goes. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll go set one of those up. And now you're telling me, oh, I didn't. No, there's some I free ones on there. OnCyber <laughs> oh, okay. has some free ones, but the the Vincent. Van Doe one. I don't know if you oh, saw, uh-huh, went and saw a uh-huh. fantastic collection, and I was yeah. like, I want this lobby, and it was fantastic. yeah, but yeah, anyway. well, so it goes. There you have it. <laughs> the crazy, <laughs> wacky world of NFTs. Yep. The wild, wild west of the metaverse. <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been so much like this fun and entertaining, and you give us a bunch of new artists that I will make sure to link up in the show notes. If people want to follow you. Where, mm-hmm. where can they do that? And where can they find out about new drops that you're doing? Is I'm taking just crypto Twitter, just basically? Yeah. Right now, yes. My Twitter would be the place. I am at the Sarah Show since 1996. You'll find me really, that's that's my screen name pretty much everywhere, super rare and, and all the other platforms as well. Like I said, I do have a plan to start a Discord channel. So maybe maybe by the time this is up, it'll it'll be out and maybe not. Anything can happen. So, so yeah, my Twitter's the best place for that. Awesome. Well, if you do have it up before this goes live in a couple of weeks, I will, I'll put it in the show notes as well. So we'll, we'll have a link there. Sounds good. Great. Well, thank you again for being on the show. And let's, let's do another, this would be fun to do like a round table of glitch artists and, and go through some, some stuff at some point. Yeah, I'd just, love that. Cause it seems like there's that old, it reminds me of like that. There was a, something called the PayPal mafia where like Elon Musk came out of that and go, went and uh-huh. created everything that he's done. And there was like several other entrepreneurs. I feel like you're that for Tumblr. Like there's like this old yeah. Tumblr, <laughs> like glitch mafia that is now these massive mainstream or big, bigger artists now thanks to NFTs. So yeah, it's very that's cool. Totally, totally on, on the nose. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll talk soon, Sarah. Thank you. 
All right. Thanks, Kevin. All right. That is it for this episode. The one quick thing you can do that would be super helpful is obviously tell your friends about the show, but also head on over to proof.xyz slash reviews. And there's a button there to rate the show. Uh, Giving us a review would be much appreciated because we're a brand new show. And the other thing is just a reminder, we have all the full show notes, all the links to everything we talked about today. You can just find over at proof.xyz. Thanks for listening. Thank you.